Um, here we go. I'm gonna give my dad a text. Let him know we're about to call. Hello, Michael. Oh, hello, Ben. How are you? Hello. hello. We got myself and this is Ross. Hello, Mr. Schaefer. And this is Matt. What's going on, Mr. Schaefer? I recognize your voice here, Ross. Hey, Matt. Good evening. Yeah. I recognize yeah, yeah. voice. Your voices, all your voices from the. From the podcast you guys do regularly here, so. <laughs> oh, yeah. But we get that all the time. We, we get that all the time. <laughs> you guys hear our voices and they just know. <laughs> but this is the live version, so. That's right. Um, Dad, thanks for coming on again. For many of our listeners, you remember my dad, Mr. Schaefer, Rich Schaefer, from the Back to the Future episode, um, back in the sci-fi speeches. But I asked him to come on again. Uh, for this, uh, Jimmy Carter speech, uh, which is the, uh, speeches by prophets, but I'm already going too far because, uh, it's his job to introduce the episode. Um, but I'm probably going to stumble over myself because I sort of have to introduce the episode to let you, uh, share the bit that I'm sort of looking for. Now, the speech, dad, to put a fine point on it, I, I told you a little bit about it last week at the bonfire. But this is his speech from, um, let's see, April 18th, 1977. So let's think about that. You were, how old were you? You were 24, going on 25, right? 25. Yeah, right. That was yeah, the year 24. that your mother and I got married. That's right. Yeah. Back in October. Late when you, your mother and I got married, right. You would have been... You would have, yeah, I guess you would have been just engaged as well, since that was uh, about six months later, so. That's correct. That's correct. Well, okay. no, actually, I think we got engaged in uh, summer, but at any rate, yes. Okay, just painting a picture for the life of Rich Schaefer for the audience here. Okay, so engaged or almost engaged Rich Schaefer. Um now, I remember mom, uh, sort of sharing, taking a certain amount of responsibility for your environmentalism, which you took on in life. She describes a man who I can hardly imagine who used to throw Christmas trees in ditches. Can you, uh, confirm or deny this? <laughs> I would, uh, agree to that, probably that comment, yes. Yes, I would, uh, she, uh, really put me on the right course to say it to, to be, Quite truthful, yes. So not not only did Mom put you on the right course, but Jimmy Carter, one might one might say as well. Do you do you remember the speech at all? Another name for the speech, which apparently is well known, is called the moral equivalent of war speech, where he outlines ten very specific goals or principles for Americans regarding energy conservation does does this speech in particular he gave Rena bell do you remember it well no no but uh jimmy carter was one was an engineer by by default you know or by his design and uh he was very much he was quite the leader in terms of realizing the needs of energy conservation because of the oil uh, shortage or energy uh, shortage that came about in his administration back in the mid-70s uh, when gas prices start increasing significantly uh, as such and there seemed to be a shortage of uh, oil 
and therefore everything started going up, uh, uh, 55 miles per hour speed limits and and uh, long lines at the gas pumps uh, as such. And uh, and because of that, uh, he led the uh, the uh, effort to be more energy conservative. In fact, and so uh, energy conscious, I should say. So uh, so anyway, he really uh, led that effort and in, in being an example himself of putting solar panels on on the white house and and uh and instrumental in terms of windmills and and uh wind wind generation to uh to uh give and lead an example of what needs to be done to to save america uh, from a from a democrat point of view so right couldn't have said it better myself now <clears throat> you didn't just stop putting christmas trees in ditches um following carter's uh uh call to americans um i was thinking to myself man it's crazy ross and matt have never been to my house which is sort of unique because a lot of my other friends have a lot of the biking babies folks and whenever they uh whenever a friend goes to my house my parent your house specifically um we always give them a tour which i'm proud to um serve as a guest speaker on but you're of course the main speaker uh, one of the focal points of that tour, of course, is your greenhouse that you built. Can you share a little bit about the significance of this greenhouse that you built right around this time period? Well, we uh, once we got married, you know, and wanted to, to build out in the country, we, Gina and I, we, we wanted to do everything we could to uh, be energy uh, conservative in terms of our house design. So, uh so uh, we wanted to get energy cheap for heating, and we wanted to uh, do it in a smart way. So we did not use any natural gas or for any of our appliances. We totally designed a electric-based uh, home as such. And and uh, one of the things that we needed to get uh, was heat during the winter time, and and it was such that we orientated our house and its design to be south-facing. And so that we could capture as much of the sunshine as possible. So uh, what we did was we, uh, the second floor of our home, south facing, was loaded with windows, and and then the uh, greenhouse, which we call a sunroom now. By the way, uh, there's not much green in it anymore. Uh, but anyway, we designed the sunroom to be the the width of the house and and uh, some density to it, such that we could use it to uh, heat up. And so we had done a lot of calculations on BTUs and window sizes and uh, needed to capture the maximum sunlight possible and as well as from our sunroom so that we could use our sunroom in addition to the second floor windows to heat our home. Uh, and, uh, and to this day, it, it works very well. Uh, and then that was for winter time. So what would happen is that we would have windows in, our, in the uh, wall of our, our uh, sunroom uh, that's on the south side of our house and north side of the sunroom, and these windows would uh, open up automatically during the uh, morning when it would get to 69 degrees, and, and these windows act as a cold air return, as you have in your home uh, with any furnace. And then, uh, and, and then as the sunroom would warm up to 80 degrees, the fans would would turn on, and then they would start pushing hot air from the sunroom into the main house and then the windows on the second floor would start heating the room up 
uh, as such to uh, heat the second floor, but it did it in a way that the uh, home, which was designed with uh, mostly all uh, ceramic tiles, to it was used to limit the, the heat uh, rise in the home so it would not be instantaneous but more of a slower rise. And so we did all the calculations on on, uh, on the window sizes and the thermal mass and the, of the home and the floors and the concrete that was that was uh, in the foundation walls to to determine how much heat we needed and how much uh, capacity we could come up with in, in thermal uh, uh, savings to uh, make this house work and uh, and then during the summertime we just loaded the outside of the house uh, with trees and when we first built there was not a tree on the anywhere near the house and we planted trees around the house and, and it served as a median to uh, keep the house cool uh, during the summertime to help keep the air conditioning load off of the house so it worked really really well and uh, and we're really happy with it our energy bills like last month was only fifty dollars as such so uh, the uh, strategy that we used in designing our home 40 years ago uh, worked and uh, and I guess more recently, uh, uh, Michael edited an article that I wrote for uh, Mother's News uh, back in February, March. that talked about our passive home, and and, uh, and like I said, with Michael's editing, uh, it was a article that we submitted and and was uh, applied in the uh, Mother's News section there. So, so, so anyway, let me. It was a neat. Neat product that we created. Let me, let me dumb it down to a few key points for our lay people here, Ross and Matt. I was gonna say I just the push sun, the button and it's like my sun, house gets to seventy degrees. The sun is in the south during the winter time, and as my dad remarked, our house major windows face the south. Now, what sort of got lost in there is the house was in a sense sort of over engineered. It. We used to be a greenhouse, yeah, that kept for more heat, but the house got so insanely hot, even on a negative 10 degree, went negative 10 degree day winter. It was unfathomable. You would walk into this greenhouse and be 120 degrees. It was was uncomfortable. So yeah, they got changed to a sunroom because there was uh, effectively a lot excess heat being uh, generated. Um, so yeah, on cloudy days was, were, or basically the only days that, uh, we have to pay for heating. My mom and dad have to pay for heating in their house in the winter time. So yeah, pretty neat, cool, uh, cool thing. We got, we'll have you guys out there sometime. Maybe he'll, he'll host the podcast crew. We'll do a live podcast from the greenhouse (laughs) in the the winter sweating. (laughs) But uh, true to, to Michael's point, you know, one tends to forget uh, some of the earlier details. <laughs> it did get very warm. You had to have the windows open at times just to uh, uh, get rid of some of the extra energy that was uh, that was uh, not needed uh, on some uh, uh, sunny days uh, that that uh, that would that would occur. Okay. Well, thank you, Dad, for that uh, trip down memory lane, life, Schaefer uh, life during the uh, time of the speech regarding environmental activity. Um, man, there, there's a lot more I think we could go, but we'll uh, we'll have to save that for another day. So 
it is your task here to introduce the speech, guys. Something you've done this before now. You're practically an old pro. <laughs> yeah, well, ladies yeah. and gentlemen, uh, who are listening to this uh, podcast here, uh, we're uh, going to present a speech tonight by Jimmy Carter, dated April 1977. And uh, the three gentlemen that are going to be involved in this uh, podcast, which are very intelligent, is uh, uh, Ross uh, and Matt and my son Michael. So uh, I listen to your broadcast podcast very often, or well, regularly, I should say. I, I, I got to say that you guys are really some intelligent <laughs> fellows here. So anyway, with that being said, uh, have a good podcast here. I look forward to uh, when it's all edited and uh, and the broadcast here. So love it. Let's it. cue the music. <laughs> when you see the road from every direction. Give you hope, it'll give you perspective. I've been back and forth, and yeah, I had my crashes. Now I've seen the road, it goes every direction. Lovely. That was... Dude, that's a really co- I didn't know that story yeah. about your house. house. Yeah. That's a really cool, uh, yeah, it's a really cool story. Yeah, that is impressive too, just that they did that. <laughs> Sounds like by letting all that heat escape, though, the Schaefer's caused global warming. So, <laughs> <laughs> jokes on them. Oh man, that's a good joke. I was, I, I, yeah, I was waiting for it. Okay, here we go. Thanks very much to my dad for introducing the episode. You missed the introduction of Landon. That's right, Landon is not with us tonight, so uh, you're stuck with us three goobers. Jimmy Carter's The Speech, April 1977. Um, The speech has been called the Meow Speech, a little bit derogatory, um, but that's an acronym for a title for the speech regarding a particular clip or quote from it um calling it the moral equivalent of war speech um this speech i my dad just introduced the episode he did it i he did i asked him to do it for reasons that he sort of talked on there but also because he asked for the speech guys to do a speech that was sort of on the topic of climate change all right and while this speech is more on the idea of energy conservation, there's a lot of the exact same themes in play here regarding being responsible with natural resource use, you know, how long can we keep going on like this, which really run in parallel and in synergy with uh, the issues regarding climate change, right? With that, why don't we go ahead and listen to a clip of this speech. And uh, we'll sort of go from there. First reactions, research um, regarding the topic and uh, the 1970s JC and uh, some uh, discussion questions. Without further ado, Jimmy, take it from here. Tonight I want to have an unpleasant talk with you about a problem that's unprecedented in our history. With the exception of preventing war, This is the greatest challenge that our country will face during our lifetime. We must not be selfish or timid if we hope to have a decent world for our children and our grandchildren. We simply must balance our demand for energy 
with our rapidly shrinking resources. By acting now, we can control our future instead of letting the future control us. Many of these proposals will be unpopular. Some will cause you to put up with inconveniences and to make sacrifices. The most important thing about these proposals is that the alternative may be a national catastrophe. Further delay can affect our strength and our power as a nation. The oil and natural gas that we rely on for 75% of our energy are simply running out. In spite of increased effort, domestic production has been dropping steadily at about 6% a year. Imports have doubled in the last five years. And our nation's economic and political independence is becoming increasingly vulnerable. Unless profound changes are made to lower oil consumption, we now believe that early in the 1980s, the world will be demanding more oil than it can produce. World consumption of oil is still going up. If it were possible to keep it rising during the 1970s and 1980s by 5% a year, as it has in the past, we could use up all the proven reserves of oil in the entire world by the end of, next, of the next decade. Our national energy plan is based on 10 fundamental principles. The first principle is that we can have an effective and comprehensive energy policy only if the government takes responsibility for it and if the people understand the seriousness of the challenge and are willing to make sacrifices. We will monitor our progress toward these goals year by year. Our plan will call for strict conservation measures if we fall behind. I can't tell you that these measures will be easy, nor will they be popular. But I think most of you realize that a policy which does not ask for changes or sacrifices would not be an effective policy at this late date. I believe that this can be a positive challenge. There is something especially American in the kinds of changes that we have to make. We've always been proud through our history of being efficient people. We've always been proud of our ingenuity, our skill at answering questions. Now we need efficiency and ingenuity more than ever. Okay, first reactions. I know one of um, one of the things that really stood out to me, and I don't know if we want to go here right away, but was just the um, just the idea of like the president asking the general public for sacrifice in such like a direct way. Um, yeah, I just thought it was really interesting. I mean, you hear about that with World War II and Victory Gardens, and you know these kind of like nostalgic. I don't know, somewhat nostalgic things like um, that went on with that. Um, not that they're easy or like um, like you would have chose to do them without like dire circumstances. But yeah, I mean, I think there's something um, cool and unifying about the way people responded with that. Um, but yeah, just like that was what stood out is just like the idea that a president would do that because I, I don't know, I just have a feeling that wouldn't be received terribly well. Um, yeah, that wouldn't be received terribly well. Take, like, I don't know, that stuck out to me as well. Just the fact that I feel like, I don't know, maybe I'm reading too much into it sometimes, but I feel like a lot of times today pe the president, the people running for president, even the president, are just trying to get people to vote for them. Mm. So it's about giving people what's easy, what they want to <clears> hear, kind of, or making it sound nicer. Um, but, 
you know, the kind of the more of a call to action, you know, you guys are going to have to make sacrifices too type thing. Um, yeah, that definitely stuck out. Um, and then the small thing that stuck out, which I think Matt made a funny quote on, on the outline, but when he talked about increasing coal, that just kind of stuck out to me as kind of like interesting because I mean, yeah, because obviously for that purpose is different than like when we talk about climate change today necessarily, but, um, just how that would be received now amongst like a, yeah, just, I kind of thought that was interesting. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's like tying into his emphasis on oil and gas being minimal in contrast with coal. Yeah, I got it. I'm just, yeah, just, oh, okay. okay. Just, it's well, just like, for, for our audience, just like thinking of it in terms of climate change. It's like, like you said, yeah, there yeah, are yeah. a lot of similarities, but that's one that is not necessarily a similarity. But. Yeah. And you know, it's like climate. I mean, well, Global warming, I think, was the more uh, traditional term at that point. I believe it was during uh, George W. Bush's presidency that climate change was uh, taken on as the preferred term. One, because in a sense it sounds less scary, like we're not being toasted in an oven. Uh, but it, it is also more accurate in certain senses as well. Um, so, yeah, the point I was just making is that yeah, I th- global warming, I think, was a recognized thing even in 1977, but um, I think most Americans probably would not have known what it was, though, at that time. Um, and it, it, in fairness, it's also not Jimmy Carter's concern here either. Just to jump off real quick, since that was both me and Matt's kind of overall first takeaway was this kind of president asking for us to make sacrifices. Can you guys think of a time like in our lives, like semi-adult lives, that like a president has asked us to do something like that? <clears throat> yeah, I mean, I think that is a really good and interesting point. And I do remember that, I don't remember where I read this, but remembering that, <laughs> as one would imagine, people just did not like hearing that from President Carter. I mean, people don't like hearing that from your own mom or dad to make sacrifices, let alone the guy who lives a thousand or three thousand miles away. Um, it takes a very certain kind of person to to accept that. Um, but yeah, president has to make sacrifices. Well, I mean, <laughs> I mean, President Biden asked us to make a lot of sacrifices, yeah. you know, with with COVID. Um, I mean, President Trump, sort of, you know, but yeah. Um, uh, but other than those obvious ones, thinking about Bush with Afghanistan or 9-11, like, yeah, what would have been the sacrifices there? Yeah, I mean, COVID's the only thing that stuck out to me. Um, right, yeah, yeah. Which started as like fourteen days to slow the spread, which is kind of funny to think like that was the slogan, I, <laughs> you know, to start with, and then thirty, and then just kind of no definitive <laughs> number. I remember one of my student, you know, obviously this was before the lockdown. Um, <laughs> we also made a promise not to talk about COVID again on a podcast, but <laughs> one of my students was right before lockdown. She was like, "Why don't we just put?" All of the people with COVID all in one place, and then they just can't move. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, kids, kids' minds. If it were, if it were only that simple. Um, 
Yep. Okay. Yeah. But some something else that sort of you know Ross was saying. I mean, well, can you imagine a candidate running on that? And of course he can. And it's not like Jimmy Carter did either. I I doubt that these plat these platforms or pillars were in his um, running platform. And it do- it makes me wonder then, like, huh? What were his platforms? He ran against Gerald Ford, I believe. Who was running for re-election after taking the presidency from Nixon? That was been a good history test for you guys. But Ford did not win, obviously, because he pardoned Nixon. Um, but yeah, what were Jimmy Carter's original like? How environmentally was he um, as a presidential presidential candidate? I don't know. Another interesting thing with just with the sacrifices, I don't know if you guys saw the Saturday Night Live skit I posted the link to. This was regarding inflation, and I guess he had had a similar speech with Americans about basically like consuming less and doing things to fight inflation because they're like kind of alongside the energy crisis. I guess this was like kind of a you know uh, tag along issue, and. Uh, there was a, so in the Saturday Night Live skit, this was like their cold open. It was like a fireside chat type of thing with Jimmy Carter. I think I did watch uh, Dan so much some of this. Yeah. Okay. And he and he basically like has his daughter take out her piggy bank, and she has twelve dollars and fifty cents. And he's like, "All right, what's eight percent of that? One dollar, pot, you know, whatever." So she has her like burn a dollar bill on live TV, you know, <laughs> to like say what Amer- Americans you should do the same. Take eight percent of your income and burn it, you know, <laughs> and uh, which is which is funny, but at this, but at the same time, it's just like, well, like he's not a hundred percent. Not that you should burn your money, right? <laughs> of yeah. course, but like, there's something to be said for like, oh, well, if I don't need, you know. A new suit maybe just don't buy a new suit right now <laughs> you know if i don't really need this yeah. like maybe don't get you know there's there's a lesson there that's not ridiculous but um but yeah i just think it's it's an interesting thing that like these sort of like reasonable solutions that just involve individual changes in behavior um are just roundly mocked you know right. i want to say there was like a similar thing recently with joe biden and inflation or something I don't know if it was Saturday Night Live or some other comedian, but, um, but yeah, like, yeah, it's not like there's um, no truth to that, to just the idea that like personal behavior actually matters, you know? Yeah, so that sort of to make I don't know, it sort of strikes me in a certain way the idea that can a president or a politician have any meaningful effect on those very like deep-seated behaviors like responsibility and virtue right and i mean i think that all of us would probably land about the same here he'd probably say like no i mean your parents have a hard enough time but still obviously legitimate time having that influence on you by virtue of the fact that a kid eventually realizes how much time and energy they've invested in you. And obviously, you know, it all comes together and realize, oh, wow, they, they actually do love me. And some kids obviously never realize that. <laughs> and they go to hell. Um, <laughs> and then, you know, ne- next level up, of course, you have teachers, pastors, who 
still have a significant level of influence on you. Like, they could tell you to burn the dollar bill, and some would burn the dollar bill. And then you get way, way out, yeah, to the politicians. And, you know, you can just imagine. It keeps getting more and more more diluted, right? And it, what's interesting, I think, they're, they're sort of like... The paradigm, I guess is maybe the right word, is that we somehow, uh, we, I don't know if it's we think or politicians think or what it is, we think, I'll say that we think that politicians have that power in the United States, like to, to speak that way. And, you know, maybe it's because, you know, one can argue that, uh, an evacuation of responsibility among parents and pastors, so therefore that expectation of power has been transferred to uh, politicians. I don't know. Just just an interesting thought thought to play with, maybe. But at the same time, there. I mean, again, I don't. I couldn't tell you how this was received, but I mean, it's a very famous quote right. by JFK, like, "Ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country." You know. And again, I don't know if he was asking for sacrifice as much as maybe he was just saying, hey, America's great, you should do great things, yeah. just in general, you know, whatever. I, like, I suppose I couldn't tell you the exact context of that or how it was received or understood. But So, yeah, and, and I mean, like, maybe more uh, general, but I mean, like, Billy Graham, you know, speaks to people. I know we did a podcast on him. We haven't done a Mother Teresa speech, although she'd be interesting. Um, but, uh, like, she obviously, like just kind of evoked this sort this like very uh uh yeah just powerful like change in behavior with people you know with different things um just to name like a few that are very distant but still very moving so i don't know i don't know if it's completely um yeah i don't know if it's completely out of the realm of uh, to hope for a positive version of that from a president um I mean, I think there are a lot of negative versions of that, I mean, in the 20th century with, like, authoritarian people. But, but yeah, I don't know if it's outside of the realm of possibility to at least hope for some sort of positive version of it. But I don't know if our culture is in a spot where that would be accepted by, like, either party, you know, for any cause. Yeah. Um, to sort of backpedal slightly to, uh, to my first reactions for the speech, I'd say that my two were... You know, he outlines 10 principles for guiding the development of the policy um, regarding how we're going to ensure that we have enough energy, material energy, to keep our economy moving. So I only said the first one, or Jimmy Carter only said the first one in that speech excerpt, but, but there's nine more after that. Um, I'll just read a couple of other ones here just so you get the idea. Uh, reduce the annual growth rate in our energy demand to less than 2%. Reduce gas gasoline consumption by 10% below its current level. Uh, insulate 90% of American homes and all new buildings. So on that point, what was just really striking... Oh, and he wanted to achieve those by 1985. I think what was really striking to me is that just how, how measurable they are. Regardless, you know, remember the acronym set SMART goals... They're measurable for one thing, um, and they they nail that. Like you know exactly what that would look like to get to that point. 
I, I think with with climate change stuff, it can feel a lot more overwhelming as well. You know, regardless of whether or not they're realistic, it just it at face level, this is what we need to do to reduce, um, you know, global warmth by 1.5 degrees Celsius. Like, whoa, the whole world, like. Holy smokes, what am I going to be able to do about it? My recycling's not going to hardly, you know, so in, an idea like that. Versus what Jimmy Carter's conveying here, it, it feels much more attainable, uh, for sure. So, uh, just, just a simple, simple observation. And then as well, you know, it is, it, it is a little bit like doomsday-ish, right? Like, I don't know what we're going to do if we don't meet these goals. We're going to run out of oil. And this sort of goes into a discussion I question I'd written down, like, what if a Republican had been in office when this happened? Because th this is what I'm sort of imagining. <clears throat> Jimmy Carter, you know, he's, a, he's in his Monday morning meeting with his cabinet, and there, <laughs> there's <laughs> the guy who's the, the head of the Department of Energy. He's like running down the hallway and he's like late for the meeting his is the only chair that's still empty and jimmy carter and the rest of his cabinet you know the department of education department of ag they're like eating their donuts just like as any old monday and then the department of energy guy comes in <laughs> and papers are like falling out of his arms this is this is like the scene from armageddon where he breaks down the door and he's like the asteroid is going to hit Earth in 12 days. <laughs> I feel like it was like that. Except, of course, he wasn't saying asteroids in here. But he's like, we're going to run out of oil based upon my calculations by 1985. Or, you know, whatever Carter was insinuating here. We obviously know that did not happen. And we now sort of have the luxury of time and variables to say well if only carter had seen this or if only democrats would realize this or blah 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 but carter was dealing with an environmental issue at that point that was like devoid of partisanship because remember, because remember, who was responsible for the Clean Air and Clean Water Act? Here's my second history question for the day. I don't know. Richard Nixon. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember listening. When was it? Listening or reading something, a speech by President Nixon, and it was it was sort of similar to this. I guess it was maybe when he was presenting the Clean Water Clean Air Act. It was something to the effect of like look, we have not managed our natural resources well, we need to start managing this well, or else we're just not going to have, you know, the right kind of earth for our, descent, our children and grandchildren. So that was sort of like the, the landscape for environmentalism from that point, where people realized that natural resources were a uh, limited resource up to Carter, which was, you know, really only like eight years later. The point I'm trying to make is that up to that point, it was like, environmentalism always seemed like a pleasant hobby for america those first like eight years like oh look at all this garbage in rivers we should start doing something about this and what carter received for the first time was this 
hypothesis that if we don't dramatically change the way we do things, we are going to be up Shit's Creek without a paddle. And it's like, how else, what re other reasonable way could Carter have handled it? Like, would it have really been responsible of him to say, we'll invent fracking, <laughs> you know, or we'll invent whatever, whatever, we'll invent whatever, whatever. And so with that, you know, hopefully that thought experiment is illuminative to open up the pathway to the idea that what if a Republican had been in office when this took place? Would things be completely flipped, right? Because... We're a very antagonistic society. One party does one thing, the other party has to do the opposite. Um, so I'll... Okay, I will set that thought there. That completes my first reactions. <laughs> Let me... One last item on that. And we, of course, know that happens because the Democrats used to be the pro-life party and Republicans used to be the pro-choice party. And then that obviously flipped. So it happens. My first thought when you asked if a Republican had been in office, I guess my, my, the way I thought, started thinking about it, which I don't know if this is what you're asking, it wasn't like, oh, how would it have been presented? It was like more if a Republican had presented it, would it have been received differently? Um, but anyway, if that was your way of thinking, that's the way I at least thought about it first. But my, I feel like it would have been about the same simply because... I feel like people tend to, in some ways probably in a good way, and in some ways maybe not as good of a way, like worry about themselves. So when you see things like, oh, you know, we're going to run out of oil, or with today, you know, climate change, it's like, I feel like it's very easy to say, yeah, but like, if I don't do anything, just me, it's probably not going to like have a different end result. So I think people probably fall right. into that state, and that's easier than I'm asking you to make this sacrifice. <laughs> um, so I think that's probably part of the maybe people's inaction on a lot of big issues. Maybe it's just because it, it's hard to see how your individual contribution is going to do a lot. Um, I'm not saying that's the right way to think. I just think a lot of people probably end up acting like that, especially when the alternative is, I'm going to ask you to make these sacrifices. So here's an interesting, fun trivia question. <clears throat> Obviously, well, just you guys' hunch. What percent of people would you say think that way? Think what way? Like what Ross is saying is like, well, oh. it's easier to do nothing. And, of course, it's all a spectrum. Like you're going to be more that way with certain issues than other issues. But at the same time, it does concentrate itself as well, I think. So, I don't know. I, I've got a number in mind that's, like, based partly on, like, evidence. So, I don't know. You can agree, disagree. It's sort of, sort of fun to think about. Percentage of people that think that way. Yeah, I mean, it. I don't know. I feel like that's such a... Yeah. I don't know if you can just say, this person thinks that way. This person definitely doesn't. Well, you know what I mean? I don't um, know. It's, a, it's an odd way to... I mean, I, I get, like, people's people are always going to prioritize our immediate needs over, like, the large-scale future needs that, based on projections, will come into fruition, but also theoretically could not. You know, like, if, 
if turning the thermostat down to 60 degrees is going to maybe put a small dent in climate change or it's going to make my wife furious at me, <laughs> you know, like, all right, well, there's, I don't know, like, that's, it's a real, I, I mean, it's kind of a trivial thing, but at the same time, like, uh, I don't know, there are real consequences, yeah. you know, um, even if there are something kind of silly and, and you know, don't podcast scared like 75%. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, so what I was running with. So I was going to say, I think something like the 80-20 rule applies here. Um, do you hear about all the time, especially in, in parish life where, you know, 20% of people do 80% of the work. Um, it was an interesting sort of parallel as well. I was listening. There's a guy on NPR a year or two ago, and he was, um, he uh, what's, what's the word for it? He... A campaign, he manages campaigns. What's the word for it if you manage people's campaigns? You sometimes do campaign like... Campaign manager? <laughs> <laughs> That's not the word I'm looking for. <laughs> Advisor or uh, strategist or... Maybe that's it. And you work with both parties sometimes. You like usually work with one more than the other, but you might work with both parties. I don't know if that... Sure. Okay. But anyway, he was doing this interview, and I think he was Republican, but he was explaining how, look, 80% of people, their vote was already committed to a Republican or Democrat. They'll vote for a bag of nails if there's an R or a D next to it. But that 20% is the, the, fight, the part that you're actually fighting for in an election. So, I don't know, just an interesting sort of parallel here that... I'm I'm basically trying to articulate that 80% of the population is just your lowest common denominator are not going to do anything that no one else is not doing, you know, whether it's climate change or um, picking up a can they walk by or going to church when you can't post about it on Instagram and, you know, stuff, stuff like that. So I don't just an interesting number to, to contemplate. So kind of tie in a previous episode when we talked about um was it the Ray Everybody Loves Raymond episode? And we talked about kind of the Homer Simpson effect and how in some ways it's almost like seeing those type of characters gives you permission to not do a great job just as a man. Like I would wonder if maybe that's part of why mm. Maybe a little bit. I'm not saying it's the only reason, but I would wonder if it's at least part of why people tend to, if these things are real and they're going on and it's going to make me make a sacrifice, it's easier to kind of, I mean, vilify the idea or doubt it or like give a lot of, oh yeah, like I'll mm. latch on, oh, that's not real. Like this person said, this scientist said it's not real. Like I'll latch onto yeah. that because that kind of gives me permission to not, you know, have to step up or do a certain thing or live a certain way. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think just, just to play with the idea a little bit more too, you know, to, to dip our toes and in, in Catholic stuff, you know, you hear your, your stuff every so often about our lady of Fatima and predictions regarding the end of the world and, you know, whatever, whatever. And it's like, you know, even with stuff like that, <clears throat> without, like, looking into the particular, like, 
prophecy or whatever the secret of Fatima, you know, whatever. Like, even that, you are certain, like, I am indisposed to, like, not believe it. This is like, what? I don't want to believe the world is ending in 30 years. <laughs> um, and I'll, pl I'll say something to myself like, well, the church hasn't confirmed that's an official apparition. So, <laughs> right? Without, like, actually looking at the evidence. That's just, like, I prefer to take on that default belief, which I think is sort of sort of in parallel with what we all have that tendency. That there's a default belief that we want to take or are more inclined to take for whatever reasons that we have to sort of fight through. So when I was uh, teaching, um, the students, some a lot of the days, half the days or something, they'd have like six or so minutes to do a journal entry about some sort of prompt on the board that, excuse me, had something to do with something that had to do with something we were studying in school or something outside of school. And every so often climate change came up and one thing that was particularly striking was how much it was on these students minds so this was a catholic high school so even there right you're already sort of mitigating a certain um saturation of like liberal bias or something right so you can presume that in those homes there's not a whole, there's not an above average commentary on climate change right but there was definitely a palpability to anxiety about climate change which i sensed sort of you know thinking that through things that we've talked about the lost greta thunberg episode um the i i referenced in our outline a gentleman who's a neuroscientist named michael Shermer outlined some of his thoughts on climate change and you know i think it'd be helpful to outline and sort of talk about the three sort of psychological dispositions with respect to climate change and one is your catastrophism sort of perspective which, which that's your Greta Thunberg your AOC who uh, said that the world is going to end in 12 years I don't know when she said that so we might be down to 11 or 10 <laughs> um, your your non catastrophe non catastrophists i suppose which is like your michael Shermer, um and that is the those that group of individuals i i put myself in this group who take all the scientific claims facts very seriously i believe it i'm not a climate scientist i have no room to doubt but the idea that this is the end of civilization like even if we didn't do anything, like I I don't I don't accept that. And then the three is your climate change doesn't exist. It's a hoax created by China. <clears throat> um, I th I think that pretty much summarizes the three the three groups. Am I missing any groups? I think that's a good broad brush of the groups. I think people could pick it apart a little bit, but not. Yes. I think it would be not helpful for the discussion. I can't even imagine how you can pick those yeah. apart. But give me two okay. minutes. 
Um, <laughs> so, what, what, okay, uh, another anecdote that, that sort of helps break apart this idea a little bit. You know, the, the knee-jerk reaction, well, okay, I, I've been talking too much, so let me stop there. I know there's a question that we've already talked about before in the Greta Thunberg episode, but again, since that's gone, and we keep making a point about it. And I wasn't there for the Greta Thunberg I'm, episode. I feel like you were. So. Maybe it was the AOC episode. No, it was Greta Thunberg. Oh, well, I don't know. I was, Yeah, I wasn't there for Greta Thunberg. So I'll ask it again. What What's your first memories of being exposed to the idea of climate change in science and in the news? How How old were you? Did you go home and cry? Did you go home and plant a tree? Did you say, not happening in my lifetime, and throw your can of soda pop out the window? <laughs> Which group were you in? There's three options. <laughs> I mean, I don't. I guess I was. Um, I do distinctly remember just various environmental things being very strongly promoted, and like with little kids, like you kind of have to do it with like something concrete, right? So we would like. There was a day or like where we spent like half of the day like walking through different neighborhoods like picking up litter or something. And I want to say that, but yeah, and like just general stuff, but I, I really don't recall being taught on, at least not on a definitive moment or day, like, oh yeah, this is climate change and this is terrible and you're going to die. You know, like, I also don't remember anyone telling me the opposite, like this is something made up, but you know, like, I don't know, just like, yeah, the earth is important. You should take care of it. Like, I don't I, I guess it was very diffuse, I guess, the, the education on that sort of stuff, like. Yeah, I mean, I think I remember mostly. I, th- I don't, you referenced Mike earlier when kind of the term changed from global warming to climate change, but I feel like just global warming was a term, kind of talked about like in, kind of elementary school, but usually tied into. Just kind of general environmentally friendly things, Earth Day, planetary stuff like that. Yeah, I th- I'm pretty sure like second grade is my earliest memory of it. You know, reading it like the tail end of different, you know, yeah, nature, environmental books. Um, I do have a memory from my science book. And I remember it was published in 1988. <laughs> and on one of the pages, you know, like some of the pages like stand by themselves and like, and now let's talk to a real scientist. And it's like this interview back and forth. And they're talking about, <laughs> yeah, like literally the... There, it was the popularization of the idea of global warming. And this guy asked the science, is like, we solved the ozone problem by getting rid of CFCs in our cans. Do you think sol- solving global warming will be just as easy? That was literally the exact question and exact context. And the guy said something like, no, but, you know, because it's a lot more complex of a problem, a lot more factors feed into it, blah, blah, blah. But no, I mean I definitely <clears throat> I mean I'm I'm just I'm a very guilty feeling person. You know, so I remember in second or third grade when I was hearing all the stuff at the back of textbooks for the first time 
it was definitely like very striking like i definitely wasn't like super anxious about it but it was definitely like on my mind for sure i used to annoy the crap out of my uh family by turning lights off everywhere in the house because they had not read the back of textbooks like me uh <laughs> so yeah it was it was definitely something uh something on my mind for sure I don't know if we want to get more into the actual like energy crisis of Jimmy Carter's day and oil and other things, but because um, we've kind of switched to the like climate change, and I don't know, I think it might be worth at least a, a minute to talk about like when you said the three categories. I feel like you could say there's a a fourth. I think to, to kind of talk about real quick, because I think it might be at least worth spending just a minute or two on um, in the climate change um, in particular um kind of conversation like you kind of had the three main groups i feel like there you could say there's a fourth group and i think it would matter the reason i bring it up is because i think it this group could impact people's reaction to it but i think between groups two and three so we'll make a new group three and the old group three will make group four um wait who's group three okay so group one is the catastrophist oh catastrophist (laughs) group two is this is serious this is real but, um, you know, humans won't be extinct in 12 losing years. Our minds. So, yeah, between not right. losing, between reasonable and right. it's not Right, so happening. then the old group three, which is now group okay. four, is China makes is making this up. I feel like there's probably a decent <laughs> amount of people that kind of fall into the, I get that it's going on, but doubting um, maybe human, I get that, you know, the temperature rising, like that type of thing is happening, but doubting how much of an impact humans are having on it so like maybe doubting accepting the fact that the climate's changing but not accepting humanity's role in claiming and changing said climate so i feel like that like that group and the reason i think it like i think that's probably a real group and that would factor into a lot of people that like kind of like we, we mentioned like you can't they're not gonna be, their minds won't be changed by facts about the climate changing because they would accept that the climate is changing. Yet, um, if humans weren't directly causing it, they would not be motivated whatsoever to change their own action. I don't know. That's, that's the reason I kind of brought it up because I feel like that group um, could, at least for some people, explain why people aren't very motivated to take action. So <laughs> that's good because we we need to answer my dad's question, which inspired this whole episode. Why do Republicans not believe in climate change? And I think that you're adding to the fourth group, Ross. I think it's helpful to sort of get to the get to the core of that. And I think that this is the reason. Because sorry to our viewers, just to see what just happened. Mike started <laughs> leaning forward as I was speaking, and I start. I felt like he was going to strike. I started backing away from my computer. <laughs> <laughs> I I think because the the theory of climate change says something about us, right? It implies something about us in the exact same way that a traditional family structure is a really successful structure for bringing up a child, right? It it says something about us if something goes counter to that. I think that that is the reason why, quote, unquote, 
Republicans don't believe in climate change. That's a slightly oversimplified way to put it, but there's, I think, something substantially to that idea. It says something about who we are that is distasteful. Like who we are as like fallen human beings or who we are as Americans, I guess like... I mean, I could say both, but the fallen fallen beings, that would have to hold true for every country, and it really doesn't. Americans, I think, more so, because we consume a lot. Like, we're well known for that. We invented the Big Mac. We invented super sizes, right? You know? Um, I mean, even, like, the cowboy. The cowboy relies on these vast tracts of land to roam around. Like, those are all just very very core American... I, well, <laughs> I don't want to say the Big Mac's a core American value or <laughs> idea, but it's definitely, like, a very American thing, right? Again, at some level, there is just something naturally sort of, like, threatening. Now, at the same time, and this sort of goes with what you were saying earlier, Matt, like, there, there is an American way, I think, to conceive of responding to climate change and what you had expressed earlier was what what is the most elegant or way of talking about climate change in a way where the dignity of the person is at center without talking about it in a way where it's population control or some sort of socialist you know society right because, I mean, those two ideas, I mean, I think that we'd all agree are also, like, very un-American. Like, what? No. Controlling how many kids we have or anything like that? Like, oh, no, can't do that. So then you just, like, flip to the other opposite extreme, which... Yeah, I guess um, one way maybe to phrase it is that to some degree each... I mean, it's not even just political parties. You can, like, extrapolate this to, like, anything that is competing for our attention is that... The things that are sell, you know, sex, drugs, and rock and roll, right? Like those things kind of just sell easy. Oh, yeah. Right? <laughs> They're the types of things that, like, yeah, you can get, you know, in ter- if we're talking about like the 80 20 rule, <laughs> you know, you can get 80% of the population hooked on a product, mm-hmm. on an idea, on a whatever, um, if you just like latch onto one of those, right? Mm. Not necessarily like, specifically sex, drugs, and rock and roll, but you know, like, I think sex is one, um, money, freedom in this sort of vague, like licentious way, right? Which applies to a lot of things, um, and, uh, luxury and whatever, whatever it is you want to call it, you know, all these kind of very superficial things like, so I think to some degree, everyone has to, not everyone has to, um, there's a, a high degree of temptation to just like sell out. <laughs> to like one one excess or another, you know, and in terms of like why Republicans have have you know to some degree I don't know maybe there's a little bit of happenstance there like you meant there's some historical things like the first president to really come down hard on it happened to be a Democrat no one really laid a you know a stake down on that um, so that's how it became right um, I would say. Um, 
yeah, any sort of new thing, like to some degree, the first person claims it and like people like, you know, you're going to have people who disagree with it, you know? Yeah. I mean, I, I think it, it might be more universal than America. Um, I mean, I think specific to climate change, like, yeah, I think we're probably uniquely like consumptuous, if that's a word. But uh, so, yeah, for climate change, perhaps it's uniquely American that we like push kickback against that. But I would imagine like just fallen human nature, every culture is going to have its, um, its thing it doesn't like, you know, like the vegetables it doesn't want to eat or the, um, the bed it doesn't want to make or, you know insert analogy there yeah i just sort of like run with the idea a little bit more i mean just think of europe like europe just sounds crowded you have like 20 countries in the size of like texas <laughs> or like east of the mississippi river like they've they've been dealing with conservation from just a very practical level for hmm. 500 years right sure i mean I, I do think there might be a little bit more I mean, besides just like the, you know, people are sinful and people don't like making sacrifices, whatever. Uh, I think there's definitely something to that. Like, right, that's kind of who we are, right? People are fallen, you know, Americans like Hummers and, you know, Big Macs and, you know, other, uh, other places might have other things. But like specific to climate change, I think there has been at least a non-insignificant amount of, I mean, there's certainly been unity in terms of presenting, like, this is happening, and this is serious, but not as much as, like, this is, this is a solvable problem, and this is what everyone needs to do, you know, um, or this is what is a, this is, like, the low-hanging fruit, just do, like, if everyone did this, great, you know, like a, more like an actionable plan, you know, there are these, there seem to be these kind of like fashionable trends, right? So like, um, recycling, recycling, recycling. And, you know, I know that re I cited a Boston Globe article that like basically plastic recycling hardly ever happens, you know, in this, you know, some sort of investigative reporting they did. Um, and I know just from hearing like a presentation on like a local recycling thing, like based on people's poor recycling habits, you know, leaving paper wrappers on things and like leaving food waste and recyclables like it's kind of a lot i mean not a lost cause but it's very like the, the benefits we're getting from recycling seem to be drastically less than they could be or should be i you know you know similar thing with like reusable grocery bags right i know there is the there is uh I, I mean for some reusable grocery bags you would need to reuse them like an inordinate amount of times in order to like make up the the greenhouse gas emissions for like one of like the throwaway bags right and most of the throwaway bags we use, I mean, I've reused grocery bags for my lunch for the last year. So, like, <laughs> you can, like, you can get a lot of use out of those. So, in some ways, like, these sort of, you know, disposable, quote-unquote, grocery bags might even be more environmentally friendly than some of these fashionable trends, right? And I think some people kind of see that and, like, just dismiss the whole thing, right? So, they see, like, some sort of trend or some sort of idea as to how to save the world, and kind of are like, ah, oh, that's just, that's just the trend today. It's going to, you know, kind of almost like a, like a nutrition skepticism, like, oh, eggs are good for you. Now eggs are bad for you. Now eggs are going to save your life. And now eggs are going to give you a heart attack tomorrow. And at least in the actionable side of things, there doesn't seem to be nearly as much clarity, you know? And I think that kind of causes to some degree, a level of paralysis. And maybe I'm just like, not informed on the clarity. Maybe that, maybe that's out there and it just hasn't 
trickled its way down to me and whatever. But, but yeah, I think that that's an element too. Like it doesn't seem quite as actionable, um, as like it could be. I, don't I know. think too, to kind of jump off that and I'll try to answer maybe a couple questions, thoughts there and see what happens. But like, I think it's harder to elicit a response when you can't see the consequence quickly and easily. So it's kind of like, um, like to use an analogy. Uh, yeah, I won't do too much analogies yet. Maybe we'll get there in a minute if it'll make more sense. But like, it's hard, I think, to convince somebody you need to do this now to prevent a problem from happening in the future when I think there's just a lot of people and maybe it's kind of cop outs, but like end rounds of, well, that might not really happen because they said that Miami was supposed to be underwater by now, blah, blah, blah. Or, and they were wrong then. Now they're wrong now, you know, or, um, well, we'll figure it out. You know, technology is really good. There's a lot of smart scientists. They'll figure something out for us. So I feel like there's a lot of like excuses you can put up to kind of make it seem less pressing um, to where it doesn't seem as dire, at least on the surface. So it makes it like, it kind of makes you feel better about not taking action now. It's where something, if it was more of a, I don't know, dramatic pressing problem, I think you're going to be more likely to get a lot of buy-in. Not that it's not dramatic or pressing, but you know, like in Armageddon, we have 12 days, right? It's not like, um, so everybody was going to be on board but like climate change is different. So I think that probably, I don't know, to kind of connect, like, I don't know, like the earlier, like, why don't they believe in climate change? Like, I just think it's harder to see it. So it's easier to justify around it when it involves making sacrifices on my own, like on your own part. Yeah. I mean, I think in there's something, um, (laughs) Michael Shermer references a lot, which I totally believe in. I'm sure you guys would agree just as a thought experiment. So I was really sick, like, yesterday and the day before. I healed miraculously. I threw up four times on Tuesday night. <laughs> I didn't. I wasn't at work yesterday. Gotta leave that in the audio. Um, needs to know. This is like the Michael Jordan flu game. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, Mike. Don't say you're healed. Say you're still doing it. <laughs> but, you know... If you ask Republicans or Democrats, like, the evidence for climate change or vice versa, like, neither of them know anything. No, no layperson knows more than the other person, right? It's it's much more instinctual belief than we'd like to admit. Um, so, there's that. To rebut, to, to rebut Matt's point a little bit with... Um, like, well, what do we do? You know, this article says it takes a thousand uses to reuse a bag, whatever. And I tip my hat for you reusing your grocery bag, Matt. But, you know, I, I could imagine there's a lot of similar arguments that could come from, say, hypothetical cross-country runner from uh, to, to a high school cross-country coach. Like, you know, I read this article that actually 8 by 400s are better than 12 by 300s for running, right? And, you know, why do we do a long run every other week? I read an article where it should be every week, right? And everything this kid could be citing, like, could be true. But 
you don't you're you're dealing with a problem in the case of the high school cross country coach he's trying to get you know his team to the state cross country meet and you're dealing with this problem <clears throat> you have a pretty broad knowledge of the issue and you're going to try through consistency and patience you know a hundred different things every single year and you eventually realize that okay maybe these two things aren't working so you throw those out you replace those and you do two new things the successful cross-country coach isn't is the one who is doing things with consistency and with patience and i i made a similar point with actually social media and youtube and crap like that where there's something about that's utterly counter counterproductive or counter efficient or counter smooth whatever to like dealing dealing with covid because what's much more effective is 300 million people all doing the same thing then realizing that this doesn't work and then moving on to a new thing rather than 300 million people doing a hundred thousand different things right even though they're all citing like this article that they read or something like that does that make does that make sense so with going back to the climate change example to applying these different metaphors it's like with me I do I do use reusable bags and we actually we all all three of us drive sensible cars, very energy conscious cars. I drive 56 miles per hour if I'm not in a rush to get somewhere, even if I'm in a 30 mile per hour zone. Okay, okay. <laughs> I don't do that. Okay, I do push the speed limit maybe a little bit. Right. Um yeah, I do recycle, even though apparently my plastic bottles are just being tossed in a landfill or something. Although I am very conscious just of the... Citing it as an example. I, just... I, I know, I understand. <laughs> and I take my paper labels off too, don't worry, Mike. You know, and I don't, I don't know, what else? You know, turning off lights, and I literally do not have hot water. It is shut off in this house. I stopped using my yeah, dishwasher ex- the that's... other day. Right? That would actually make Claire furious <laughs> if I did that. Yeah, I understand. <laughs> <laughs> the point is is that I I don't know which of these things are the most effective, right? I mean, I could make sure. guesses, but I'm at least I like to think like cultivating an attitude within myself that's receptive to new information, that is being consistent, that's also that's also building virtue as well. And that's like one could argue, like that's that's the sort of landscape. I mean, you can apply this metaphor to so many different things. The spiritual life as well. You're building a mm-hmm. landscape that is fertile ground for you. You don't this ah, uh, and this applies to like new companies too. You don't start a new company because this is the one thing that's gonna work. No, you try a thousand different things, and you're consistent until you know. I think you guys sort of get what I'm getting at. Yeah. Yeah, and I'm not necessarily saying that, you know, read an article or something actually isn't helpful, so therefore everything, you know, yeah, I mean, I agree it's not a logical response, but it, yeah, I mean, I would say that that is a response, and there there does seem to be a, 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 yeah, disillusionment there. And you see it, like, I know I see it all the time in healthcare, Yeah. right? Yeah, 
people you know i mentioned like the nutrition example with eggs and you know yeah exactly so it's 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 a yeah it's it's a definite thing like you don't eat vegetables because this one study says so you eat vegetables because a bunch of things have said so and it's about as good as we've got right so like just got to do something but i think something you mentioned that or i can't remember how you phrased it now you said something like it builds a sort of like character or a um ethos it, it or it creates a, a landscape for <laughs> yeah <laughs> that's Let's use landscape, landscape right? Yeah. Let's use landscape. I like it. So, because that's why I feel like there's got to be a sort of like landscape image, right? So landscape, yeah, if you think landscape, you think like an image, right? Which, if you look at a landscape, especially like a really moving, beautiful landscape, you don't have like captions or like little asterisks by the tree and then this is a willow tree with whatever we have a bunch of facts right you don't have all these asterisks by a river with facts about whatever um because there's something uniquely and kind of almost more universally moving about the landscape as such when we all do things to whatever degree we do them um to that are helpful for the planet I feel like there's something other than just this one specific fact that moves us, right? There's this sort of, like, poetic underbelly to, like, what it is that we do that just seems that actually moves us, you know? And kind of like we talked about, you know, know, you'll find a fact that suits you. You know, you'll find a fact that kind of just allows you to rest more comfortably with whatever your baseline is, you know? Um, what really, I think, moves the baseline is this sort of, yeah, this moving poetic underbelly. So, like, I guess, what is it, what is it for you guys? Is, you is this our final bell question? I don't know. It can be. I mean, I don't know if we want to do that or not, but. It could be. I mean, it's a good question. It's get, getting pretty long here, so. Sure. Um... Okay, here we go. The uh, final bell coming up. One more round. There's no stopping us now. This is our round. Don't stop it now. We start and we don't stop. All your strength, all your power, all your love, everything you've got. This is all life. Do it now. I was having a conversation with Julie about kind of this type of stuff recently, and I think it's kind of like we kind of referenced earlier, like, or maybe somebody put it in the outline, maybe I'm making this up, but with the climate change, at least conversation, like, I think sometimes the people hear the, it's people kind of like, well, like Mike said earlier, like people, right, people don't actually know the statistics or the studies. You just kind of pick, you have your side and that's what you're on. Um, or one of three or four sides potentially but I think for me I was kind of talking to Julie about it like to the landscape like I enjoy spending time outside camping, hunting, things like that so like that to me like kind of that approach of talking about it would be much more convincing than I don't know maybe some other argument about something that I'm not, I don't understand very well. 
Like, what's a negative, like, a negative effect that doesn't, you know, like, I don't know, polar bears are going to go extinct or something. Like, yeah, I think that would be bad, but I don't see that really convincing a lot of people that, you know, they need to change their life. Because it's like, that sounds really bad. What? Like, polar bears are going to go extinct? Like, let's donate money to the World Wildlife Foundation or something. But for a lot of people, it's like, never actually seen a polar bear. Um, maybe one at the zoo. So I don't, and I know that's kind of simplifying it, but I feel like the more approach of, um, for me, and I feel like they're probably more effective would just simply be, you know, the, what type of things we can actually enjoy that might be lost. I guess a couple images that come to mind with myself is sort of this, um, I guess there's kind of a two part image. So there's the like abundant feast. All right. That's kind of an image and I'll, flesh this out a little bit more in a second the other is like the is like the well-kept garden right and sort of this like biblical adam and eve command to like keep the garden until it you know and like you're you're responsible for this you know to be a steward of god's creation and to kind of protect and like take care of this like whatever it is that you're given right the abundant feast and like the tilled garden or the well-kept garden one they're just i don't know like especially being a relatively new homeowner maybe i'm not super jaded yet although i've run into a handful you know your normal homeowner like uh i don't know tribulations but yeah i just feel like it really just has rejuvenated a sense of of this thing like oh yeah like i've got a family i need to provide for them you know i've got a wife and a child who need who like need food on the table right who would and who like are very joyful and happy when there's that like an abundant feast of some sort right and especially just like our catholic language of like a feast and you know the mass and you know the wedding feast in heaven and like all of this stuff just like really i don't know it just like gets me going you know and like that's the stuff that really like has me excited to like oh yeah i'm gonna take care of a garden and grow my own food because that's actually you don't need to, there's no chemicals, which is good for the earth. There's no transportation of that to and from the grocery store and then to and from my house, which is, you know, good for the earth. There's, you know, all these kind of inefficiencies uh, with our modern life. Like, yeah, that's actually really good for the earth. Just grow your own food, right? Have a compost pile, like do that sort of stuff. Like, so yeah, I would say those two just images kind of stick out as like something that actually that really like motivates me to do the thing like the things that i'm doing well like which yeah i think there's there's things i could improve on you know in terms of environmentalism or um, but yeah i think that's kind of like the moving kind of poetic image of uh, that that gets me going thinking about what i said earlier you know the different things that you know i like to do and that i believe they are good for the earth you know they're all yeah they're all like very conservation oriented things using less depriving myself of things <laughs> which sort of sounds silly but at the same time like man i just i hate overconsumption. i just hate the image like just tons of packaging like ugh, and it, I, I just hate the idea I, we are already so like weak like i I think of myself, all three of us, we are so weak. Yeah, we're going, there are a lot of people who I'm sure you guys already told, like, yeah, we're going camping this weekend. Tomorrow, we're going to see each other. 
And the temperature is going to be 19 degrees. And I bet we can all agree, like, we're really not that tough. <laughs> like, we're bringing <laughs> our own canned beer, our own canned food. <laughs> we're sleeping in synthetic materials. There is nothing hardcore about what we're doing. We are weak. Yet, in <laughs> fairness to ourselves, too, it's like, at the same, like we're also like sort of like we all still sort of like push ourselves really hard. But I, we all also know the objective sense of all humanity who ever existed. We are weak. We are worthless. And. I think, you know, I think we all identify with each other's answers slightly more, slightly less, you know, a little bit of spectrum. But I think we all we all do just we just want to be at the core of ourselves as much as possible. And I think that conservation idea of environmental activity is sort of the thing that I just really enjoy. Like the less I can use the better. And friends are, like, giving me crap, like, oh, Mike, you know, if you have a wife, you know, God willing. Like, oh, see how she likes the hot water being off. It's like, yeah, I know it would not fly not having the hot water on. (laughs) I know, you know, you have to figure out certain compromises or whatnot, you know, to live with people until they get it. Uh, (laughs) Um, So, yeah, yeah, the conservation, I suppose, is sort of like a a modern day um, re reintegration of stoicism for me that that I take a certain mm. amount of pride and satisfaction. Hey, we've only got two more episodes for this season, season number two. Mm. Wow, Matt, what do we got going on next episode? We've got an episode by I don't know. Yeah. I haven't thought about it yet. Never reinsert it. Oh well. Hey, thanks for listening <laughs> and drinking with us. Oh no, shit. And <laughs> hey, thanks for listening and drinking and thinking and thinking <laughs> with us. All right. Hey, thanks for listening and drinking and thinking with us. Hey, cue the music. Will lead us to a better place.